Need a new set of optics? For more than a decade, Riton Optics has been providing optic solutions for hunters and shooters of all types and disciplines. Check out their Primal line for those products geared more towards us hunters. From binoculars and spotting scopes to your basic 3-9 to nine scopes and longer range crossover models, the Primal line from Riton was made for hunters. Learn more at RitonOptics.com. That's Riton, R-I-T-O-N, Optics.com. On this week's episode, we talk with Ryan Gill of Hunt Primitive. And by the way, I'm sorry for the long intro last week. I'll try not to do that again. Hunt, 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 hunt. <laughs> just kidding. Let's just get into the show. Howdy, and welcome to the Where to Hunt podcast, the podcast that connects public land hunting enthusiasts. Today is, what is it, August 6th, 2019. I'm your host, Eric Clark, and you're back. Wow, you've made it back. I can't believe it. Um, Well, maybe I can. I don't know. You're a pretty goofy bunch if you listen to me all day. But in any event, I appreciate everybody uh, sending reviews and feedback and kind words of affirmation and helping my ego to do this show. It means so, so much to me. I, I seriously mean that. I hope the uh, sincerity and authenticity and whatever other words make sense there come through and how I um, you know talk about all that because I really mean it. So in any event, I always say in any event, in any event... I'd like to thank our sponsor for giving me the energy to do this show, Backwoods Grind Coffee, backwoodsgrind.com. It's the coffee that you would drink with your grandpa. It's got this gritty taste and flavor to it. It's got this aroma that can wake up a whole entire house. Even if it's brewed three stories down in your basement, you're still going to smell it as it goes through the heating ducts of your entire house or your heating and cooling system. I don't know. Um it's just good stuff. It's it's so it's so good. And to make things even better, the guys that run it are just good dudes. So I believe in them. I believe in their coffee. It freaking works. It's not placebo. So if you want 10% off, if you want to give it a try for yourself, enter in the code W number two, the letter H podcast, W2H podcast for 10% off. Um, real quick announcement before I get into today's topic is Keep this marked on your calendars in less than one month from now, September 3rd. It's a Tuesday. Uh, W2H Club Radio is going to debut at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time till 6.30 p.m. And look, I know it's not going to be the rut in September, right? I'm not, I'm not that stupid, everybody. So, But what I want to do is get that show off the ground so when the rut comes around and we start to see that activity and behavior, we have a platform and a channel for people to turn to to get the latest and greatest news about what's happening around the country and keep your finger on that pulse. And I want this to become the central hub for that. So I appreciate anyone and everyone that can spread the word and get it out. So please share. There's some posts on Instagram and Facebook that talk about that. Go ahead and hit share or add it to your story, whatever the heck you need to do. If you're on Snapchat or I don't know what other things are out there these days, but you know, go put on your uh, Tinder and swipe right to Rut Club Radio. 
um, or maybe it's left. I don't know, whatever the good swipe is, but I'm very excited to do that. And, um, just keep that bookmarked. I think there's something else I was going to say about it, but now I, I seem to not remember. Huh. Oh yeah. So because it's only be- the beginning of September, um, really, I think to kind of get the the ball rolling with that, I think I'll welcome calls that can just share your stories from last season's rut. That'll be a good way to get us excited. So, um, you know, if you got stories from last year of some great rut activity or hunting the rut and some of your success or failures, um, I think that's a great way to start. So, you know, we'll take those calls quick. We're not going to have it be awkward. Everyone's going to hang out on the line. I'm going to take them. You're going to tell me your quick little story. I'm going to drop you off, not offensively, to make room for that next caller because it's only going to be a 30-minute segment. So anyways, that's my announcement. I'll get off my little soapbox. Today on the show, Ryan Gill's, uh, Ryan Gill is uh, with Hunt Primitive. This guy is incredible. He's super, super um, talented, passionate, smart, and um, resourceful. He makes everything he hunts with from the broadhead to the arrow shaft, the fletchings, the bow itself. In some cases, it takes over a year to even let the wood dry out to make the bow. Um, I'm not doing it any justice, so I'll just go ahead and bring him on now. Today with me on the line, I have Ryan Gill with Hunt Primitive. Ryan, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, man. Thanks for having me on. Heck yeah. I'm really happy to have you. And, uh, you know, you're down in Florida, I believe, so hopefully it's not too hot down there. Um, appreciate you taking time to be on the show today. Yeah, absolutely. And it's always hot. Well, I mean, I guess in the wintertime it's not horrible, but I mean, come on, it's Florida. It's pretty much always hot. Yeah. We were like, I, I was chatting with you offline a little bit and I was down there in May and uh, it was hot then. So it, I feel like it'd be hard to imagine now what it's like, but um, let's, let's have you tell the audience a little bit about who Ryan Gill is and, and what you do. Oh, Ryan Gill, primitive hunter uh, and builder. And depends on which one of those you want to put first. I like to, to be both. Uh, but Hunt Primitive is the business that I run. A lot of people know it by Gill's Primitive Archery, and it's kind of uh, rebranded into Hunt Primitive within about the last year and a half. But I still also run, uh, you know, the, the basis of uh, Gill's Primitive Archery. So if you follow self bows and arrows and stone points, Gill's Primitive Archery is probably more familiar to you. And then if you're just catching on to me here later with the atlatl and uh, video production and all that stuff, and it's kind of more hunt primitive. But all in the same. So I build self bows, stone points, arrows, atlatls, and then uh, do video production where I go out and actually use the stuff to take big game animals and uh, try to create some uh, pretty entertaining videos. Uh, mostly to put on YouTube for free just so everybody can get to enjoy all the stuff that I enjoy. Yeah, and you you do a really, I mean, there's a lot going on with what you do. So um, in terms of kind of unpacking everything that you have going on, you know, maybe just share a little bit of your story and background as to how you got into this. You know, what does that look like for you? Everybody asks that question when I'm when I'm on a podcast, and this can turn into, so I'm not going to do it this time. I'm not going to go crazy. <laughs> You've learned. Because it's such a big, yeah, it's such a big backstory. I could talk, but basically I've been involved in traditional archery ever since I was a little kid and used to go to a traditional archery shoot, traditional bow hunters of Florida, and used to watch a lot of the primitive guys walking around. It used to be a lot bigger primitive crowd back then and shooting a twisted up bow stage bows and stuff like that. 
So I was really interested in that and uh, just kind of knew from a very young age that that was my calling and uh, just kind of ran with it. And then next thing you knew, I was an adult. Next thing you know, I'm building this stuff for a full-time living. And then that's not enough, so i got to turn it into video production. And now I'm working with universities with archaeology and anthropology and, and uh, even doing bigger video production. So that's kind of it all in a tiny little compressed can. But, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been doing it for a long time. How many years? Not to age you. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but uh, well, 10, yeah, 15. 35. Okay. I'm 35. So um, <clears throat> I would say uh, I built my first primitive bow when I was 13. So do the math on that. And then uh, I've been professionally doing this probably since I'd call it 23 years old, I think, is probably a good time to put a time stamp on you know, what we, what I would call professionally, meaning where I'm kind of building and selling stuff. I mean, at 23 years old, I, I certainly figured that I knew what, you know, business was all about, but I had no idea. You know, even now I probably think I know a lot more than I actually do. But, you know, 10, somewhere between 10 and 15 years, I've been, I've been really heavily active in my adult life. That's cool. So it's interesting you say that. Like that I, there's a quote that came to mind when you said, you know, you, there's probably still more you could learn or, or what have you. And I think it was um, the Aristotle and Einstein both said this in different ways where they said, the more I learn, the, the more I realize, the less I know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I love that. That That's not, um, you know, I'm not trying to verbatim that one, but that's the gist of it. So, you know, when when you say primitive hunting, let's what is your definition of that? What does that mean to you? You said you were at some of the traditional archery things when you were a kid, and you'd see the the um, primitive guys walk, walking around. What does that mean? You know, what are what is primitive archery and primitive hunting? I mean, I guess we could take it at face value, right? But there, there's probably some things that that embodies, right? Yeah, I would say that there's probably two distinct versions of primitive archery and primitive hunting. And uh, that really comes down to what the individual wants to define it as because everybody's going to draw the line somewhere else. So I kind of go on, uh, a, you know, one side, you know, pretty far and then the other side. That probably doesn't make a lot of sense. But I guess <laughs> it's um, one side of primitive hunting would be anything that is within the spirit of primitive archery. So that would mean like an all one piece wood bow, um, you know, or even a sinew or rawhide back bow. Some even some people even include bamboo back bows into that kind of stuff. I don't really think that that's overly primitive, honestly. Um, but shooting, you know, natural material arrows and stone points, and some people don't even say you have to shoot stone points to be in primitive. But yeah, it's kind of where everybody draws the line. And then if you go all the way on the other side of that, being as deep into this as I am, I almost look at it like true primitive hunting is everything is built with Stone Age technology and, you know, you're hunting with Stone Age technology. So I do a little bit of both because not everybody wants to just be full on into a Stone Age made atlatl set, you know, going and hunting big game with it on foot, you know, not wearing camouflage, you know, wearing brain pen and furs and that kind of stuff. 
and where other people do think that that's cool, but there's some people that want to get into it where they just like, I just want a wood bow that looks really pretty, maybe with some bison horn tip overlays and some snakeskin backing, and that's primitive too. So it's kind of wherever you draw the line. So it's it's a little bit murky, really, but uh, I try to encompass all of that in what I do, if that makes sense. That does make sense. I mean, that's that's with anything in human nature, right? Like you could go say you're going to do a certain diet, but maybe you're going to pick and choose these components of it, right? And religion, and oh, yeah. there's all sorts of politics, like where there's these things where you can draw these hard lines or you can kind of make it your own. So I like that you said there's true primitive and you skew as close to that as you can. Um, but you acknowledge that, look, not everyone's, wanna, that not everyone's going to want to go that deep with it. Um, right. That's where we, that's what we then refer to is within the spirit of primitive archery, which is a lot sure. of fun too, because sometimes it's just so much work to go full bore right into true stone age, everything it's over. It's, 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 it takes some of the fun out of it sometimes. It's important to do that from, you know, like the archaeology or anthropology side of things. You have to cover all those bases. But at the end of the day, if you do that constantly, nonstop, um, with everything you do, and you can get wore out on it really fast. So you kind of have to, you know, maybe sit back a little bit and, you know, modern it up a little bit, you know, just to have some fun with it. Plus, we all like to shoot bows that look really nice. You know, you don't want them to all necessarily just be, plain bending sticks, you know? Yeah, no, that's interesting that you say that. I, I was at a restaurant the other day and I saw like a train of Corvettes go by and there were some really, really old ones, but they're also like the brand, brand new ones, you know? So every now and again, like, yeah, the nostalgia and the old ones, there's something to that. But there's also something really fun about driving up that same spirit of the embodiment of the Corvette with all of the new technology in it, right? So um, oh, certainly yeah. we live in a modern world. It's It's hard to not notice some of those things, but there's something that, you know, attracts us to this older time. Um, you know, we chatted a little bit offline about in a, in a world where, you know, there's so much gear coming out so fast, so much technology all the time. And that's in, you mentioned not wearing camouflage, like the, the number of camouflage companies that exist and the technology that gets put into that from the scent, the material, the pattern, um, all the way up to all of the modern advancements of a bow and arrow. I was at an archery shop the other day getting mine dialed in and one of the newer sight pins doesn't have a sight pin. It's a Garmin and it just does it for you. You don't have to know the yardage. It just, you point it and it knows the yardage and then it self adjusts. Like wow. that's crazy. <laughs> it's also $800. It <laughs> so it's like, yeah. you know, um, that's, that's insane. And so to rewind a whole bunch, um, not only, are you someone hunting with this stuff, but you're making it? What oh, is yeah. that like? Yep. How do you learn those skills? Like I know one person in, in peripherally, not even like a close friend, just someone that I'm acquainted with that makes his own traditional bows. And I thought that was like, who are you? You know, you're such a man. Like, my God, I wish I could even think to do that. How do you, how does that look? How does that work? What do you, where do you start from? I imagine it's just because I started from such a young age. And I've always been a builder of sorts. I mean, even as a as a child, I was tinkering with building stuff. Like, I was always trying to reinvent the wheel, essentially, as a kid. So, uh, I guess coming from a building background and then being exposed to it at a young age, I kind of got some of the rudimentary stuff out of my system really early. So, to jump into it 
you know, in my late teens or early 20s, I guess it wasn't that big of a transition into building that kind of stuff where a lot of times, you know, like people like yourself, like you just said, like, where do you start? They're almost overly intimidated with the idea of saying, well, now here's a big pile of sticks and rocks. I'm going to go make something to kill something with it, where I look at that and I'm like, okay, it's just another day at the office because I'm just accustomed to it. I mean, that's my life essentially, you know, um, it's just, you just, do what you know, essentially, and I guess I just know this stuff. <laughs> so where would one start? If this is something like, you know, it seems as though, um, you know, based on the site that you have, there's some level of helping people kind of become aware of this and maybe learn about it and get into it. You have a pretty strong following. Um, you know, what's the gateway drug to primitives, if you will? That's funny. I use that phrase all the time. It is totally a gateway drug. Traditional is a gateway drug. But usually it's, it depends. There's Again, there's different sides of traditional. There's people that love, the, you know, the the latest and greatest, you know, carbon and aluminum or I don't even know what all um, traditional though. And then there's the people that, that maybe really like a vintage, you know, like bear Kodiak or something, you know. And uh, so everybody falls in a different line. But I think at some point, if you take somebody that's maybe really into recurves and they're like, I want a little bit more challenge in their mind, they almost go to a longbow, which I don't think is really at really any disadvantage whatsoever, but they'll be like, wow, I'm going to buy a, you know, they're coming off of a $1,200 recurve and they're like, well, I'm going to go buy a $700 longbow and they're thinking they're at a disadvantage, which really they're not. And then uh, that's kind of the gateway down. And next thing you know, they're trying to do you that. Know, maybe they kill a couple deer with that. And they're like, well, I want to make it tougher. So now they're shooting wood arrows and glue on broadheads. And then, and then they get in their head, well, I want to shoot something with a stone point. So a lot of times the stone point can really be the gateway. And as soon as they've get, got their hands on that, then they're like, okay, well, I killed a deer with a stone point off of my laminated longbow. And they're like, but it's not quite there yet. Now I need that wooden bow that self bow or primitive bow so to some people maybe the stone points the gateway some to some people maybe the uh the bow is the gateway itself but uh you know because of the journey that's different for everybody but uh, yeah there's multiple entry points yeah so it's just progressional you know some people will jump a few steps and they'll go straight from i've had people go straight from a compound being like i'm done shooting this i want to shoot a primitive bow and they'll jump straight into a self bow and a lot of times I discourage people from doing that because self bows are a little bit more user specific with draw length and all that kind of you kind of have to get to know your shooting personality before you jump into that but we sometimes we just make it work too you know somebody calls and they're insistent we want to do it well all right we'll we'll make sure you get set up with it so when I I guess when I ask how how do you start um if I could be more specific in how do you start, how do you start to make a bow? What What is the raw material that you actually start from? Um, a lot of different bow woods. Pretty much as of right now, I stick with Osage Orange because that's the most popular for the consumer. Uh, it's the best performing bow wood, really, in my opinion. I mean, there's some different opinions on that, but I think most of your primitive bow guys are in agreement that Osage Orange is the best. And uh, <clears throat> so I start off with pretty much the best of the best when it comes to Osage Orange staves. And that's a piece of wood that's been cut, split, 
and then sealed, and then you set it up for a, a bare minimum of one year. So I get a piece of wood, and it sits up in a uh, dehumidified room that I have because down here in Florida it's pretty humid. So got a dehumidifier in an insulated room and uh, work on drying that out for a minimum of a year, but typically it's more like 18 months, and then it's ready to turn into a bow, which sounds like a really painstaking long process, but I've got usually 30, 40 staves on hand at any time, so they're all just in a, in a constant rotation. I just get new ones and set them up and forget about them. And then when I start getting low, I start going to the, to the stuff leaning in the corner. So, you know, Osage Orange, season for a bare minimum of 12 months, but mostly 18 months. And then, of course, arrows is, you know, cane arrows, and you cut that, they season for a couple months. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of planning ahead that kind of goes into sure. building all this, this stuff. You know, it's not just like, hey, today I'm going to build Tomorrow I'm going to make a boat. Yeah. You yeah. could decide, <laughs> but then, yeah, you got a lot of runway ahead of you. So I'm gonna one of yeah. the one of the um the listeners or viewers um, Jeff Vance who runs Bucks of America podcast had asked, do you think you'll jump into spear hunting? And if I'm not mistaken, I think you have. I've seen some oh, videos of yeah. that specifically. Um, yep, that might be a good pivot point. Let's talk about spear hunting. That's a totally that is to me as primitive as it gets. <laughs> like yeah. I watched the video of you um, hunting a bison with a spear and I was just, I was glued to my screen. I couldn't look away. I was like, this is incredible. Um, and you talked about the approach too. Let, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. Well, uh, I think primitive archery is the gateway then into the atlatl and spear hunting. <laughs> but before yeah. you get down, let me just interrupt because I'm so good at interrupting. <laughs> what is an atlatl? Atlatl is a, um, it's essentially throwing a stick with another stick. So you're taking a, a, the thrower. Some people call the thrower itself the atlatl. Sometimes people refer to the whole operating system as an atlatl. And it's, I guess it depends on who you're talking to and how defensive they are of, of a word that nobody truly understands for the last 40,000 years. But um, the atlatl is the spear or the dart component. I prefer to call it a spear just because it's big and long and heavy and it's it's you know a dart something you you throw at the at a dart board in a pub you know? yeah. but uh so you got the big long spear and then there's an extension of your arm which is another piece of wood that attaches so essentially you're increasing the tip speed in which you can throw it because you're extending your arm with this piece of wood and um i i'm hoping that a lot of people it jogs enough of a memory to them that they're like yes i've seen it before that they are familiar enough with the atlatl i mean we should be today um, there's not many people that I run into that aren't somewhat familiar with what the atlatl is, but if you're not, it's just spelled A-T-L-A-T-L, -A -T -L, you know, all, no space, it's all put together, and really, if you just search Hunt Primitive Atlatl on YouTube, you're going to learn absolutely everything you need to know about it, but um, <clears throat> that mechanical advantage of that extension of your arm within that piece of wood allows you to throw the spear so much harder and faster than you could just by hand yourself. So one of the things that I like to do when I get around kind of new people or working with um, some of the universities, uh, Florida State comes to mind when I went and did a kind of a weekend class with them, is I, I like to pick out their biggest, strongest guy, and I hand them one of the spears, and I say, here, by, by hand, I want you to throw this into the middle of the field as hard as you can, and they hoof it out there as far as they can. 
and you know it might be 40 or so yards they're 50 yards in this big arc and then it lands in there and then i i'm you know not a big guy myself i'm only like you know maybe six foot on a good day otherwise i'm five eleven we're gonna call it six foot. <laughs> and, uh, and i'll take it with the thrower and almost effortlessly throw it you know two three times the amount that they do and so that puts it in perspective to people that what that mechanical advantage actually gives you and uh i mean it's it's a huge number uh we actually have the numbers. I've not even crunched them because we did that at Texas A&M where I threw uh, into a block of ballistics gel and they put it on a really high-speed camera. Uh, uh, and then I can calculate the kinetic energy and momentum off that. And honestly, I haven't even done it because to me it's, it's, it's almost not important. Like I know it works. And so it is kind of neglectful on my side not to show up here with, with real numbers to give you. But I can – penetrate more with an atlatl than i can with a bow and arrow and even honestly with a modern bow and arrow so we're talking bone breaking power to force a stone point and pretty large shaft through an animal and it's just it's the i i saw you on the video throw, throw the the dart or the spear at you know the the bison and i was like holy crap and I, you, you obviously had a, a atlatl, but I didn't catch it right. I, I was like, "How did, how did you aim so well?" It was like a perfect heart shot. And it's a big yeah. animal, it's a big target, but Jesus, I mean, oh, yeah. something goes wrong and that thing's charging. I mean, your heart must have been out of your chest. And so I don't, I'll have to go and actually watch the mechanics of how the atlatl helps you do that, because um, mm-hmm. I'm not grasping how you use one to you know, propel the other or to, you know, leverage it or slingshot or whatever that is. But yeah, I believe you as far as what you had said about like, you know, doubling the distance of that, you know, that strong guy or what have you. Yeah. If you could pierce an animal that size with one of these things. I, I'm just wowed by the whole, the whole concept of everything you're doing. So just don't mind me, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of like a catapult or a trebuchet, right? So it's, you're using an arm to throw something. And so, but your arm is essentially attached to the arm of the mechanism. So you're the power, but the but that extension hooks from one side. You're holding one side of the of the thrower, and the dart or the spear hooks into the other side. So it's just it's just adding leverage to the throw is all it's doing essentially. Got it. Okay. Kind of the, kind of the difference between throwing a boulder or putting it on a on a catapult and letting it throw it. A little bit. I mean, I, I guess not. All. It's not a great example. I'm not good at it. Uh, apparently, I'm not good at describing how this works. <laughs> You're painting a good picture, not though. Good. I mean, like the the velocity of it, given that extra oomph or what have you, you know, to the to the naked eye, I just didn't catch it. You know, and I know it was there because I've I've seen you talking about it, and heard and heard about it. And it's obviously on your site and things like that. But you know, to see it in action like that, you know, I, I had a friend that wanted to go spear hunting for bear. And I almost wonder if I, I just didn't even consider that they would use something like that. I just thought, well, you're going to throw a spear to bear. You must be out of your mind. Um, but if they're doing something like that, then it's interesting. Well, most most modern spear hunters throw more like a javelin type of spear. Like they're throwing something that's metal or carbon or something, and it's got a big metal blade up in the front. And that's not something that you typically stand back on the ground and throw so like you're you're 
more famous, say, spear hunters. So there's several people that, that do a lot of spear hunting, per se, on YouTube and that kind of stuff. And most generally, they're hunting with, like, a modern spear, like I said, with a with a big metal blade. And most of them are up in a tree, and they're essentially doing a gentle, almost like a drop on the animal, but they're just kind of guiding it that direction. And they're just kind of dumping the spear, and they're letting gravity take its toll. So that's kind of like the modern version of spear hunting. So they're not actually using an atlatl. They're just using gravity to do it where, you know, like when I hunt with an atlatl, I'm on the ground and I'm, you know, like the bison. It's that's pretty, it sounds far because it kind of is with the bison. But when I threw it in, it was about 20 yards away. So that's a long way to chuck a spear. But typically on stuff when I'm hunting other animals like pigs, um, I'm 10 yards and in for the most part, you know, and you know, six yards has been thus far the closest, uh, five or six yards, and then the furthest, obviously, is the bison, which is about 20 yards. So that's a totally you, different game altogether than being up in a tree or a tree stand and throwing, you know, like a metal spear down into an animal below you. Yeah, like like I said, your approach to even the bison, you know, you I don't know if it was you that was saying this, in the video because there were a couple different personalities in there that seemed to really know the topic well, but it was mentioned that, you know, since animals have been hunted for so many hundreds of years at this point, the fear of humans is much greater than it ever has been. Right. So if they were hunted that way, way back then, it was less likely to be that scared. Right. They didn't have that association. So you'd mentioned your approach to these animals. Maybe talk about that a little bit. Okay. Well, and that that pretty much ties right into what you were just saying, that we've kind of ingrained into these animals that, with the exclusion of some places, say like Yellowstone, where people all the time get like dangerously close to bison and do get in trouble because of it. Um, for the most part, bison are hunted in places uh, outside of, protected forest and that kind of stuff or you have the meat version like the meat farm version which essentially is like cattle which is kind of funny i've heard people refer to like oh bison's just like shooting a cow and it's like if you've ever been on a real cattle ranch <laughs> like ones that aren't like you know like you know little petting zoo barnyard cows that you can pet like if you go on a cattle ranch you can't get anywhere close to cows like if you ever walked in like a cattle ranch and they see like 50 yards they're running away from you that's pretty much exactly how these act. So you can see them out in the field, and you're like, okay, well, this is going to be really easy. Well, they know you're there because there's a bunch of them, so they're all looking, smelling, and hearing, and they don't just, like, stand there. And so pretty much you kind of get 50, 60 yards from them, and they get to running. And I don't think that that's what we would have really seen from prehistoric bison. I think they were more willing to stand their ground and fight just simply because they weren't um, – they didn't have that uh, that harassment over years and years of of uh, people trying to shoot at them with rifles and that kind of thing. But Lewis and Clark is a really great example because, uh, like I said, people talk about, well, they're just tame animals. You can go up to them and, you know, pet them, and then you can spear them. You know, you're not proving anything by doing this. And I'm like, well, it's different when you shoot something with a rifle because you can walk, like, 50 yards from them, honestly, to so shoot one with, like, a compound or a rifle. It's really, it's not that difficult. It's pretty easy. You just pick out which one you want and you kind of shoot it, honestly. Um, spearing one is a totally different story. Um, but Lewis and Clark had mentioned 
in one of their uh, recordings, you know, that they wrote all that stuff down. I'm not super big into that, but they they talked about uh, the elk and the bison were so plentiful that you could walk, you know, within, you know, 20 or 30 meters of these animals and they wouldn't even look at you. They just didn't care. And I think that that is just a testament to the fact that they just were not used to seeing people. And even the native tribes that were around there, I think they understood that if you didn't harass these animals the way that we harass animals today, they'll pretty much remain not scared of you. So when you need one, you don't make a big production out of it um, and chase them down and keep pushing them. You just kind of get close enough nonchalantly and you kill one. And then you don't just continue to mess with that herd. So um, comparative today where when we have a herd, if we don't get close enough, we just keep pushing them around. And then, you know, for the last 200 years, we've been shooting at them. And especially in the last 100 years, you know, people just absolutely decimated them. So, the, you, know, you know, the ones we have nowadays um, – you know, really, they're either on hunting preserves where they're shot at all the time, and that's one extreme. And then the other extreme is a place like Yellowstone where they're really not messed with at all. And I think that that's probably what you're what you would expect to see in, in primitive times is they would start looking more like, honestly, the ones that are in captivity or the protected, um, you know, national parks or forests. It's pretty logical when you explain it like that. Yeah, I guess I kind of ran ran with that a little bit. <laughs> no, I I appreciate it. Look, to me, you're the you're the expert on this, so I'm just here to ask some silly questions and get you going, and that's exactly what happened. So, um, one one of the comments that came through on the live, um, you know, live video was this conversation makes the paleo diet seem like child's play, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> you know, we talk yeah. about like picking something and holding it to its truest form. Yeah, that, yeah. there you go. Yeah, I've always kind of joked about that, too, going, well, if you want the true paleo diet, then you better make a spear and go out and hunt it yourself. <laughs> that way, because now you're burning a bunch of calories while you're trying to do it. And that's the part that yeah. the modern paleo diet leaves out, that you're supposed to go out and chase the thing down, and then you're supposed to pack it back to camp. <laughs> wild. Yeah, we'd all well, be in great shape if we to do that. Oh, my gosh. We'd all, be, we'd all be outstanding. The amount of time we spend sitting around, whether in the office or on the couch or whatever, it's just... You know, we're not, we weren't designed to be the way that I think maybe we are. And yeah. so going back to the diet of that, that's only half the equation. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But good yeah, for that. That's a different conversation, you know, one that I don't know anything <laughs> yeah. about. But one of the other videos I checked out was um, you bow hunting, you know, what I think was whitetail. And... Um, the amount of time you drew back, you'd climb a tree, like you, you put your bow up there, your quiver up there, and then you, you climb this tree and got yourself situated, did some calls and, and, you know, scraping on the branches and stuff. And then, you know, a doe come along and, uh, the draw back was so quick and it was a perfect yeah. heart shot. Well, how much time are you practicing with this equipment to be that comfortable? Like even with a compound bow, I mean, I guess you get to your, um, you know, your, your, your release point or whatever that is, when you get past that cam and you're holding and you're just hovering and holding and hovering, and holding, and then you finally feel confident and you let her rip. Um, and some, some guys and gals obviously can, can do that quicker. Uh, but it was like a split second and it was a perfect shot. 
And maybe there's others that I haven't watched, or maybe that's not the case, but that just happened to be one where I'm like, holy crap. So not only are you crafting the stuff from from nothing, right, from raw materials, you're also going out there and using it and having a lot, perceivably a lot of success. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've killed, uh, I think I'm 30, 34 or 35 big game animals now with uh, with primitive weapons. So it'd be at primitive bows and stone points and arrows or atlatls. So all conjoined together, you know, in about the last, 11 years. I think 11 years ago is when I killed, May. I think, 11, maybe 12. I don't know. Time keeps going by. Um, it was when I killed my very first deer uh, with primitive equipment. So, um, you know, and that's not including anything with a flintlock or any of that other stuff I kind of dabble with. That's just primitive stuff. So I do find success. Um, but the way that I shoot is definitely different than the way that a lot of people shoot. Uh, I do my aiming before I ever draw the string. So I'm pointing the arrow at what I want to hit, and when I pull the string, I pull straight back and I let go. And my draw length is very, very short. It's actually what I really like to refer refer more to as a native style of shooting, where we don't necessarily pull back and hold an anchor point. So it's a very fluid shot that I shoot, and that's not for everybody. Now, there's a lot of your form archery guys, they really turn their nose up to that. And they're like, well, you're never going to shoot good doing it, blah, blah, blah. They, I mean, because th- that's not the way that they shoot. Now, there's there's two types of shooters in this world. There's form shooters, and then there's everybody else. And form shooters just think that everybody else that doesn't shoot form archery is an idiot and will never be successful. And whenever I prove that I am successful, then they typically say, well, yeah, but you're the exception. And I don't actually think that that's the case. Uh, I'm just the exception that publicizes it. But uh, so I consider myself a fluid um, floating anchor snap shooter. So I don't really have an anchor, but my muscle memory is so in tune from doing it a certain way my whole life that for me to try to shoot form archery is so foreign, it doesn't even make sense in my mind. So there was a few years when I was between the ages of, I'm going to say 10 and 16, that I shot a compound. I wasn't really strong enough to shoot, uh, you know, traditional or primitive bow to hunt with. So I I would just bow hunt with a compound. And uh, I eventually obviously trained myself to be able to do it. I did kill a few things with the compound at that in those early years. But uh, for people that, say, shoot a compound like yourself, to then pick up a bow like I shoot and shoot the way that I shoot, it's totally apples and oranges. It's a lot easier for somebody to pick up a traditional or a primitive bow and try to draw back anchor, then aim and release the shot because that's what's comfortable to them. Mm-hmm. But I also grew up before shooting the compound, shooting traditional, and I had that same kind of draw. That's just I just grew up shooting that way, and a lot of people are like, you're just wrong for doing it. And I'm like, well, the stack of animals basically says otherwise, but thanks for playing. Um, for years, I had to com- combat that. People would just like try to beat me up all the time, telling me I'm doing it wrong. You're doing the archery wrong. You know, I'm like, whatever, buddy. And now I just do what I want. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that style of shooting is definitely not for everybody. Um, but it does have merit, and the people that are able to do it, other people that I've met that do shoot like that pretty much built just like me in the fact that that's how they are most comfortable. 
So I'm not a proponent of snap shooting and I'm not a proponent of of uh, form archery. I'm a firm believer in shoot however you feel comfortable. Because if you're comfortable, you're having fun. And if you're having fun, you'll shoot more. And if you shoot more, you'll become more accurate. And in the heat of the moment, when you're drawing back on an animal, you're more likely to revert back to what's comfortable if you don't have to go through this big checklist in your mind saying, okay, now pull all the way back. Am I touching anchor? I'm touching anchor. Are my shoulders extended or whatever they talk about or have I reached full tension? Am I, is my bow vertical? Is, and you're doing, now, now the deer's gone because you've been sitting here monkeying around. But that's why these guys want to shoot for the most part, you know, not always. But for the most part, a lot of them are like, well, I shoot at deer that are 20 and 25 yards away. And it's like, well, you almost kind of have to because when they're six yards away from you, you didn't have time. They're here and gone. And the right. they saw and you drop back away. Yeah. And I'm yeah, just so the kind of person. Yeah. Those are split second, split second decisions that you, that you make. It's interesting. Um, I read the, the book. I read a lot of books. Uh, David Goggins wrote the book, you know, can't hurt me, but he had quoted in there, you know, in the military, he had said something like, you know, we are always told, you know, we rise to the level of our expectations. I'm sorry. We don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. And to me, what you just described is having that comfortability. You, you can always fall back on that. And it's not something that you consciously do. It's something that you mentioned, muscle memory. You do it time and time and time and time again, and you fall back on that rather than rising mm-hmm. to some preconceived notion of I'm supposed to shoot this way, right? That makes a lot of sense yeah. to me. Yeah, I think so. I think another, and I'm probably wrong on this, but maybe not, but I think uh, uh, along those same lines somewhere, and I don't know if it's something the military teaches or if it was just somebody within the military that said that, that said, um, you know, you're only 50% as good as you train. And uh, and I'm a big, firm believer in that. So, like, if I train to shoot 20 yards, I'm as good at 20 yards, or I'm as good at 10 yards when there's a deer in front of me um, as I am at 20 yards on a, on a target. So I might be able to shoot really good. Like, I can step back and dial in on a deer-sized target at 30 yards. But when it comes down to it, uh, at 20 yards, I'm not nearly as good as I would be in that heat of the moment. I would, I would much prefer to be, I would say, you know, and not even much prefer to be just because I just make it so. I set myself up in a situation where, you know, 90% or more, probably more of my shots on deer or pigs or what have you, really inside of about 11 yards. And uh, I would rather be considered by many to be a better hunter than a better shot. Like, to me, a good shot right. shoots at right. you know, 30 yards, but a good hunter shoots at 10. Yeah, that's that's very valid. You know, I've, I've been to a couple of different um, outings or events lately, at trade shows and things like that, where there's the shooting contest and it's at, you know, 65 or 70 yards with your bow. And some mm-hmm. of the guys are like, well, I don't, I don't ever shoot that far. Why would I do that? That's not like I would never take that shot in the woods. Now, there's some guys that can. There's some guys that, you know, make a thing of it. Cam- Cameron Haynes is probably one of them where he's lobbing arrows at 100 yards, right, and hitting the target, shoots his bow every single day. And that's, a, you know, he's been doing it for 20 years or more or whatever. Um, sure. You know, for the average average Joe Lunchbox hunter, that's going to take their bow out, right, and just <laughs> put it to the highest setting on your, on your uh, sight pin and let it rip. You know, that's not realistic. 
Um, I'm only comfortable shooting at a live animal from up to 25 yards. I won't even consider a shot beyond that. Though, when I'm out on the archery range, of course I'm going to take some 40-yard shots because that's what the, you know, it's set up to do that, and it's kind of fun. But I'm not taking that shot in the woods. You know, that's me personally, right, to each his own, but um, I, I yeah. won't take an unethical shot. And it's not that I'm high and mighty and say that, you know, oh, right. I, I'm, I'm so ethical that I wouldn't shoot further because, and actually that's not the case. I am, and it's taken me a long time to really grasp this and to to not be afraid to tell people this. Because honestly, I don't really care what people think about me. I'm not a big ethical person. I don't. I'm not so much concerned about that. I am a a, a big proponent of efficiency over ethics. I want to hunt that is efficient, and I know that if I shoot further there's a decent chance that I'm going to hit and wound or lose that animal or miss and damage my gear. And I mean, I'm shooting stone points and stuff where, I, I mean, this stuff takes a long time to put together. For me to lose an arrow, it's not, I don't just roll down to Walmart and go buy a new one. You know, even my personal stuff, I have a lot of time invested into this. So I don't ever want to miss an animal because now i got to go hunt an arrow, and that's no fun. And I sit there and spend how many hours hunting just to wing an arrow at something that's a, a low opportunity kill. And then if it's out of my comfort zone, I know that there's a higher opportunity that I'm going to wound it. And it's like I said, I'm, I'm not sitting here preaching to people saying, well, you know, the ethics tells us we need to kill the animal, you know, as quickly and as humanely as possible. I mean, ethics tells us that I'm, I don't care about ethics, quite honestly. I mean, I just don't, I'm a, I'm an efficiency person, but as a byproduct of efficiency, we get ethics is what comes from it. So I don't want to shoot an animal because now I'm like, now I have to spend hours looking for this animal that very good chance I'm not going to find it. But the ethical side does come in because I'm like, well, if I got an arrow into something, I'm certainly going to spend a lot of time looking for it because there's a chance I'm going <laughs> to, you know, you can still find something later. And my elk story is, is uh, people that haven't really ever followed my elk hunt, um, that's a great story. So many people would have given up on that, and uh, because we didn't give up, a team of us looking for that elk, I was rewarded with a, a nice public land 5 by 5 bull shot with a primitive bow and a stone point, and it wasn't a good shot, but that's the kind of stuff I want to avoid. So for me to bring an animal close and say I'm going to be 10 yards before I shoot, it's not because I'm afraid of you know the ethics police getting me. It's because I don't want to spend forever looking for the animal. I don't want to shoot my product and lose it. Now I have to go back and remake it. So it's like I'm a all eggs in one basket kind of guy. When I pull the string on something, I want it dead every single time. Like I want a slam dunk. I don't want to. I'm not a basketball person at all. It's just a good. <laughs> uh, a good yeah. I don't want to throw three pointers. I want slam dunks. Sure. So I'm sure. Well, it shows. I mean. Well, so oddly enough, one of the comments that came through is from uh, Bruce Ritter-Clark, who runs a, a a company called Ethics Archery, but it's a product, right? So he's laughing. He's like, you know, my feelings are hurt. He doesn't like ethics, but he's referring to his company rather than the, <laughs> the yeah. term. I was just going to say, I'm sure somebody heard that and goes, oh, crap, Ryan Gill doesn't care about ethics. And, and for years, I, I don't want to go. We used to call it stick and release, you know, when I was younger. People would shoot stuff really far. You know, it's like catch and release on fish. When you stick and release, you shoot a deer and it runs off, you don't find it again. Because it was kind of trying to make light of, of that situation. But I don't like that still. It's not like I'm just like, yeah, you should just go out and shoot stuff all the time and not find it. Like, 
I don't believe that, but what I, but rather what it is, it's not that I don't care about the animal because I absolutely love animals. I don't want animals to suffer, but I don't focus on the ethic. I focus on the efficiency. And like I said, what we get as a byproduct of efficiency is ethics. So instead of just being like, well, I don't want to shoot at that animal because ethically I don't think I can do it. If I start focusing on, I can't, I know that I'm more efficient if I don't shoot at that animal. In in result, I'm going to be a more ethical hunter. But ethics isn't what drives me. Efficiency is. Yeah. Well, if you think about the cave pre- prehistoric times, right? Like you only had so much energy, right? And and that energy was going to come from that animal that you were trying to kill. And so you right. probably didn't have enough energy to go get the thing if you took a shitty shot. Um, if it didn't land or you wounded it and you had to track it forever, that's not good for you know your caloric intake and burning those calories. So it that makes a lot right. of sense to me. And you're right, like and the ethics become a byproduct of it. So you you already check that box, right? That's just not your focus. And it really makes sense when sure. I think about what you're actually trying to do. So uh, I'm good with it. I'm I sure the I listeners can, are. But I think I can learn more about shooting for efficiency than I can ethics. Ethics is could potentially. For a person that's not overly experienced, maybe they should keep ethics in their mind because they don't necessarily know what efficiency necessarily is. I don't. I, maybe that doesn't come across right. But I mean, if you don't have a lot of experience hunting, say like new hunters, they don't know where that line of efficiency is. But ethics might be the thing that kind of keeps them in check, you know, to keep their shots in close. Because like I said, I'm a big, I'm a big uh, believer in keeping your shots close whether it's for ethical or efficiency reasons. Either way, you're, you can't go wrong by shooting at stuff that's close. It's, it's wing and arrows, it's stuff that really fires that turns into where it's not ethical and it's not uh, efficient either. So it's, it's just a lose-lose. I'd rather have a win-win than a lose-lose any day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, this is a good time to pivot into, you know, speaking of some of the different hunts, and I've, you know, we've talked about you, you've gotten elk, you've gotten, you know, um, boar and, is it boar? Big? Wild pig. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, just wild pigs. The biggest, you know, people. That if you call it a boar in America, it better be a big, you know, feral, yeah. feral pig boar, you know. Otherwise, the, the people in Europe get all offended because they're like, that's not a boar, you know. And I'm like, oh, that's not a knife. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's not a boar. Uh, it, no, but then whitetail and, and the bison. So, you know, the question that I think I love to ask, and I'm going to shut up and listen after I ask this, is, you know, tell me a story. Tell me a story of your most memorable hunt. And for you, this is going to be, I hope, very interesting because your memorable hunt takes a whole other caliber um, of hunting to to do. It's uh, that is a that is a really tough question because every hunt to me, not every hunt, different hunts, but many hunts are different milestones. So the most memorable is oftentimes my latest and greatest, biggest accomplishment. But if you really render that down, um, I I have a hard time picking just one. So, I mean, I will lead into a story, I suppose, but I would almost rather give you a little bit of context of the journey rather than a single kill that or a single hunt that's that's the most memorable. I would almost Mm -hmm. rather give you a little bit of the journey of getting where I'm at by almost touching on those milestones and, you know, the first one obviously would be the very first deer that I ever killed with a primitive bow. And that was really unique because I was hunting in a in a homemade wooden ladder stand. And 
had never shot a deer with a bow prior, and for whatever reason, I thought I could do better with a primitive bow than a compound. I had killed pigs and stuff like that with a compound, but never, but never a deer. And but I just had it in my head. I was like 19, or I don't even know how old I was, maybe 20. And uh, I was like, that's it. I'm I'm gonna hunt with this primitive stick, and I'm gonna kill a deer. And I just had it in my head. And I was hunting out of this ladder stand, wearing camouflage back in the day when I used to wear that stuff. And these deer came, two deer crossed the fence in, in about 30 yards from me. So I watched them kind of go and, and get behind some palmettos. we got lots of those here in Florida. So I get down. It's, it's, it's getting late. Like, it's like dark 30, and I can still hear them walking around over there, but it's time to go. And they're in the direction I have to go to leave. So I get down at a tree stand really quiet and just start sneaking that way. And it was just very fortuitous as I'm sneaking around the edge of this palmetto one walks right out in front of me on the trail at 10 yards broadside never notices i'm there just continues to walk and i already had the bow up and ready so i just in that same shooting fashion that i do that i pull back and let go really fast i shot a double long at like 10 11 yards on the ground and uh she stormed off and crashed and i got her and that that really had me hooked i mean so that was like milestone number one and then, uh, you know, of course, I've had little ones kind of along the way, first mule deer, first, you know, buck, and all these different things. But uh, fast forward even more, um, I think the first deer that I ever killed on camera was huge for me because killing a deer in general is just so hard, especially with primitive stuff. And then you're talking about trying to capture it on video that you're filming yourself at these very close ranges, you know, 10, 9, 10, 11, 12 yards. So, so difficult. And I just didn't think it was going to work. And I was just, but I, I was like, I'm going to do this. I just want to try it. If I get one on video, that's enough. I don't have to ever get any more. I just want to show people what I do. And when it finally came together and I shot one um, underneath a tree coming in that I was sitting up in, sitting up in a big live oak and, uh, or standing up in it actually. And, uh, it came in to eat acorns, and I shot it, and it was just this little button buff. But to me, it didn't matter. It could have been a 12-point, and I, I was just tickled with it because I got it on camera. I made a good double lung shot. It ran, you know, 70 yards, which was actually pretty far for one to run with a double lung, but uh, usually they go down pretty quick. And, uh, you know, followed the blood trail to it, found it easy-peasy, beautiful, got good, you know, video of it, what I thought was phenomenal at the time, and it was like, just on a cheap little camcorder, you know. And that's what I made my very first uh, video on YouTube off of. But then after that, I was hooked. So that was another big milestone. And then uh, kind of fast forward even more, and then we went and did the elk hunt. And my buddy Tim, uh, who is now my, my uh, go-to camera guy, uh, I talked him into coming out with me. And we flew out to Idaho to hunt public land with a, a a customer that I had actually kind of become friends with named Benji Hill. He's got like a little outfitting business out there, Goat Pro Idaho, and because uh, he runs pack boats. And uh, you can just pack all your stuff up into the mountains and hunt <laughs> for, you know, a week or whatever and come back. So it's kind of neat, you know, because it's all packed in. You can't drive up there. and uh, But the goats help because they carry so much stuff, you know. And uh, so we, we packed up in the mountains. And there's people that I know that elk hunt their entire life um, it, to to kill one elk, you know, especially on public land. And I arrowed, you know, a five by five bull on public land the first night we were there. The very first elk we saw 
there, and it was across the mountain. And they're like, do you want to set up camp and go after them in the morning, or do you want to go now? It's, you know, you got about an hour and a half till dark. And I'm like, it's standing there now. Let's go now. And we right. went after <laughs> Where's it going to be in the morning? That's what I'd be yeah, thinking. Yeah. So we just, I, you know, stood up next to a tree, and, and uh, we called a little bit and never got an answer back. And uh, Benji and the other guy, they kind of bailed out because they're like, nothing's really happening. They went to go see if they could find one somewhere else because we were just kind of hunting as friends. It wasn't a guided hunt. We were just friends, you know. So they bailed out to go hunt somewhere else. I just stayed there because I'm pretty confident. If I'm in a good spot, I'm not the type of person to walk away from it in hopes I'll find something better. That's not my game. So I'm like, it's, I'm in a good spot right here. I know there's a solid trail that elk are using that's only like 10 yards away. I'm I'm hanging out right here. And, I mean, it's just, it's getting pretty darn dark, and I can look up the hill and see this bull. And he's real nervous. He doesn't want to cross this big avalanche slide that I'm that I'm set up on. But, all, you know, as it gets later and later, he just, he's like, nope, I got to go. I know there's a girl over there. So he starts walking down. Well, just as he was getting close to into that 10-yard trail, he got a little nervous and he ended up kind of jumping back onto a different trail, put himself at about 20 yards. So it was a little bit further of a shot, but it was on an elk. And I had been up since about 3 a.m. that morning Eastern time. And by this time, it's like, I don't know, 7 p.m. mountain time. So it's late. Like I've been up a long time, jet lag, hiked up into the mountains. I'm tired. Um, and now all of a sudden I've got this bull elk in front of me, cameraman behind me, and um, I could blame it on a lot of stuff, but it's so much easier just to say I flubbed the shot. I have no idea what happened, but I hit him I hit him way far back, and I really don't know. I can't blame anything other than whatever circumstance, being up all day, jet lag, poor shooting, whatever have you. I mean, I, I make a lot of good shots, so I mean, I guess you're kind of afforded some bad shots once in a while. Maybe it's buck fever, I don't know, or elk fever. Don't even know. I just got a bad shot on it, and uh, it crashed. I didn't even see where I hit it, but it ran off, and I was like, I'm pretty sure I hit it. Couldn't hear the arrow hit, didn't see the arrow fly because it was getting almost late enough that you couldn't see the arrows fly, And but you saw the animal react, and so we decided to let him go. We had great blood, just decided to let him go till the next day. So the next day we get down, and there's blood everywhere. And I'm like, wow, this is really looking good. And it was with a stone point, you know. So I was like, that's kind of rare. Usually with stone, you don't get great blood trails. And we tracked him all the way up the top of the mountain. And at that point, you knew, you know, when you're going that far from like 7,000 feet elevation to 10,000 feet, and that elk's doing that, you know that you did not make a good shot. So <laughs> yeah, tracked him point. up and over the mountain, over 10,000 feet, down the other side, and finally found him. And uh, it was it was till the next day yet that we got up there with the pack up and uh, we were able to get him and pack him off. But there was a long time that we were without blood trail, and there was four of us looking. And uh, you know you'd find one little spot, one little pinprick, or just following tracks even you know in the mud because the snow was starting to melt off down low, still still sticking up high. Um, but you'd just be tra- following tracks. You know, you know, you ha- it has to be it. So you just keep following the tracks. The next thing you know, find a little pin prick. And I'm like, and everybody's like, I would have given up. And I think everybody individually would have given up on that trail. But when, like, I got, like, kind of frustrated with it, and I was like, we're not going to get this elk. Then next thing you know, Benji was like, here's a drop of blood. And then he would kind of take over. 
And then when he would get frustrated, the other guy, Ryan Smalls, he would find a drop of blood and be like, now he's rejuvenated. We're and he would lead the pack. And when we hit the snow line, I knew that we couldn't lose him then because we definitely had tracks. And everybody kind of stopped to take a break. And I was like, I'm going to walk right up to this little extra little bench and see. And I found a spot where it laid down, and then it started bleeding like crazy. And it was blood, like a running trickle in the snow. And then I was charged, buddy. I was like, I'm getting this out. And I, you know, walked him out the rest of the way, a long way. But sure enough, found him. But a heck of a lot of people would have given up on that elk and uh, ended up getting them because we were stuck to it. And I think that that was such a defining moment that that probably is the, it wasn't my best shot. I mean, it was probably one of my worst shots ever. But for a hunt and for the overall spirit of the team, you know, like a, a, a cooperative hunt where people are, are tracking the animal. We've tracked this animal down. We found it against all odds. It went like 1.2 miles by the GPS, which is up a mountain. So, I mean, it's you know, it's further than that. It went 1.2 by GPS. Not, I mean, so it was a long way, and we found that animal. Um, so that's a that's a huge um, accomplishment um, from the team standpoint and from the adventure standpoint. So oddly enough, that probably one of my my biggest milestones and success stories hinges on a really bad shot. Um, that's fascinating. You know, and I mean, that's... The, yeah. the word adventure so, is what stands out to me the most. I, I, I by and large hunt for adventure. So anytime I can get off the beaten trail and I think those are the most indelible memories, you know, and I think out of all of the guests that I've had when I ask this question, most of them say what you said, which this is a hard question. Um, rightfully so, but the the common thread through all of them is that the more uh, what, I don't even know what the word is the more um, I guess off the beaten path the the more adventure that exists it's usually the case that it's the most memorable one. Um, yep. I'm not surprised yeah, you to hear that, but that's the stuff that sticks in your brain forever, you know. Yeah. We don't remember the stuff that's easy. The stuff that sucks the worst is is typically what you look back on as your greatest memories. And uh, you know, so that was probably it for me. And then uh, and then even not to uh, not to kind of dim the candle on that one, but <laughs> you know, next milestone was my first atlatl kill. So killing a pig on video um, at like six yards, you know, completely fully wild, free range on a cattle ranch in South Florida and killing it with an atlatl, something that I thought was, was almost impossible because really nobody had done it, not with a stone point. I've seen some people do some stuff with steel points and like doweled shafts and stuff, but to take a natural material atlatl with a stone point and kill something on camera, I've never seen it done before prior to that and went out and did it. And, I mean, I tell you what, I was over the moon on that. And that rivals the elk just because of, of how difficult it is. It wasn't as big of an adventure. But, man, to kill something with a stone-pointed atlatl on camera where you can see the shot, you can see, I mean, it was just, it was beautiful. And, uh, you know, then, of course, then I went and did, like, the the Corsican sheep, which was a, kind of an experimental thing to see kind of where that would lead. And then uh, did a couple alligator hunts where I'm standing in a canoe. A lot of people think that that was my best or my most memorable, but it's not, you know, I mean, it was difficult as I'll get out, but it was different standing in a canoe spearing an alligator, a lot tougher than it sounds because it doesn't sound like it's that hard, but man, is it ever hard. 
Um, but then moving into the bison, the bison was a difficult hunt, but what makes that so memorable is it's a culmination of all the things I've been working for, um, not only in my primitive hunting, but also in my business financials, that I was able to put together a 47-minute production on my business's finances and not overextend myself, not take out some loan to go blow on this, but to actually save up and say, I'm going to put on, on a production, pay cameramen, pay, um, you know, for everybody's travel and lodging because we had a big team that went there to do this and somehow be able to hand select, you know, these close individuals that I work with to put together a team that I, that I felt confident that we could find success in actually killing a bison with an atlatl and then actually showing up and doing it. It was probably not the, it was a hard hunt. And anybody that watches that, you know, there's going to be two people. There's going to be one person that looks at it and they're like, yeah, I watched the video and that was a really difficult hunt. And then there's the other people that only the kill shot sticks in their mind. And they're like, well, the, the animals were just standing there. And it's like, if you go back and actually watch it, when I <laughs> yeah, spear, most of those bison were already running. And yeah. I just got lucky and one was standing there at 20 yards and he had looked away just as I threw the spear because the rest of them were running <laughs> by the time I got the spear in it. And they're like, well, that wasn't hard to do. And I'm like, yeah, but the, the lead up even to learn, not only being able to build the atlatl and make the stone point all yourself, but the ability to throw the atlatl and stand at 20 yards with the confidence that you can put a spear into a kill zone the size of like a paint can at that distance or the, even the bottom of a five-gallon bucket, really. I mean, that's what I was kind of aiming towards when I was practicing. This kill zone's a little bit bigger, but you always want to aim smaller. You know, aim small and this small. Mm -hmm. So I'm practicing a very small target, and to be able to drive one through its heart at 20, 20 yards, there's not a lot of people out there. I mean, there's a lot of people that can do it, but how many people put in the time to practice with the stuff that they've made to where when they are under those effects of adrenaline, that they can stand there at 20 yards with enough confidence to say, I'm going to throw this spear and I'm going to kill this animal. Because you know very well if you wound it, you're not going to get another shot on it. People can They're barely throw a much... punch with that much adrenaline coursing through their veins, let alone a spear. So, I mean, I'm I'm yeah. with you that, uh, nope, I couldn't have done it. You, uh, you couldn't yeah, have paid me enough to successfully do that. You know what I mean? Like that's, like you said, that's a culmination yeah, and it's a, and then you know, not to short sight that a little bit too, but there's a lot of money riding on that. I mean, something like that doesn't come free. It's not like somebody just handed me that opportunity. So, a hunt aside, for somebody to say, hey, you just paid for all these people to come here, and just like anywhere else, if you put a spear in one, whether you kill it outright or not, you just bought that animal. And a bison's not a cheap thing to purchase um, in a hunt. So you're kind of like married to it after that. So you have to be able to sit there and say, okay, well, I'm about to throw a spear at an animal, and as soon as I touch it, that animal's mine. Because that's the way the world works nowadays. If you, you know, because we don't really have these wild herds that I can just go on public land and hunt. Like, that doesn't exist. Like, that's that's reasonable. I could have shot an elk and lost that elk, and I still have my tag. I can go shoot another one. Well, when it comes down to the bison, you didn't have that. That was... You touch an elk with that spear, and that's that's or you touch a bison with that spear, and that thing's yours. And uh, so going into that, I wanted to be able to hit a paper plate whatever distance I threw, and 
as much as, you know, I think I was very lucky to hit it as well as I did. But I also know that I practiced a heck of a lot. I mean, a ridiculous amount because I knew what was on the line. And actually, I got, and then if you watch the video, you see I got another throw as it was, it was dead on its feet, but it was more data to give to Texas A&M University because we did have an archaeologist on site that was recording all the stuff that happened. I mean, we got so much information to give to the universities. Um, and that's really got my foot in the door with them. But uh, I got another shot when the thing was sitting there, or not sitting there, standing there, basically dead on its feet. And it was actually pretty aggravated. I walk, look back in the video, and its tail goes up, and its head's down. And I'm almost blindly dumb trying to get into range to throw another spear into it. Um, but I did it anyway, and then I put another one right through both lungs. And uh, so I kind of did it twice. So it was... Uh, uh, at least I was able to show people that I wasn't a, a one-trick pony. I wasn't. I didn't get lucky with one shot. At least I, I'm either good enough to get two that in was, there, or I'm lucky to get two in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was such a well-placed shot. You know, it was incredible. And then watching the one with the the deer, um, being being that such a great shot too with the with the boa is just, you know, what you've done is impressive. What you built is impressive. Your passion is woven in everything you're doing. Otherwise, obviously, you wouldn't be doing it. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing all of this with us, the audience, myself. I'm sh- I think we could talk a lot longer, um, but, you know, I guess yeah, I'll have yeah. you. No, I mean, it, it's so interesting. This is this is um, one of the more interesting ones I think I've done as, as far as a guest. And I appreciate you for, for being on the show for that fact. But I would say, you know, where, where do we guide people to to learn more about either you or some of the things you're doing? I mean, we, we didn't even get into it all. Like there's still you make arrows, right? You make the stone, the stone knives, the quivers and the bags and the atlatls. And, and you've um, seen me in a couple of books. You have moccasins and, and foot napping and foot like there's all of these things. Um, how can how can we point people to learn more or where should we point them to? Well, the best thing that I like to say is, of course, I sell on my site, huntprimitive.com, um, and that's and that's for all the products. And I'm I'm fortunate enough to where um, I have a full-time business, and I do well doing it. Like, I'm not rich by any means, but I love what I do. I make a full-time living. It supports my family. It's now a family business. My wife works for me as well. Um so we're doing well there. So I'm never the type of person that's like, you need to go buy my product. Because that's how modern hunters are, right? That's how, not to say modern hunters, but like modern hunting celebrities, like their whole life is built around, please go look at this product and buy it. Uh, you have to have this to be successful. And I'm not that type of person. So for people that want to purchase from me, huntprimitive.com, or you want to look at the products that I have, um, that's great. But I would say most importantly, I like to try to direct people towards my YouTube channel, which again is Hunt Primitive, all word, all, all one word, so Hunt Primitive, and just type in either Ryan Gill or Hunt Primitive on YouTube. You can watch so many videos, and it's not all just hunt. A lot of it's how to build stuff, how to throw the atlatl, uh, big descriptions on what things are. I've got you know over a hundred videos, but probably well over a hundred now, and then some of those including the big hunts or the big documentary like the bison uh, film. Uh, that stuff's all relatively easy to find. I've got playlists and that kind of stuff. But also Hunt Primitive on Instagram and then Hunt Primitive slash Gills Primitive Archery on Facebook. Because if people follow the social media pages, 
there's a lot more to learn on those pages. Like if you go to my website, I've got products, and I do have a lot of, you know, hidden kind of in some of the, the archives of articles. And, you know, you can go down these little rabbit holes on my website where you can go to one link to a, to a, a another little article and then read more about that. So there's people that love to do that kind of stuff. The website's good for that. But your average person that just wants knowledge, they want to learn more about primitive hunting. They want to learn more about primitive building. You know, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, I try to give so much content to just inspire people to do this. One of my, probably my biggest slogan uh, in everything I do is if you ever watch my videos, I lead it off with, hey, I'm Ryan Gill from Hunt Primitive, where we entertain, educate, and inspire. And that's how I lead everything off of, because I want to entertain, and I want to educate, and I want to inspire. And I think all those three things uh, play into each other really, really well. And people typically get that full spectrum of those three things in my social media pages. I'm not very product pushy. I don't... uh, Obviously, I do post stuff up for sale once in a while, but for the most part, I want to show you stuff. And then there's other things like Instagram TV or uh, even on Facebook um, videos and stuff where I'll sit down and I'll do these quick little, you know, how did I do this? Or look, take a closer look at this and I'll explain a little something. There's a lot of hidden messages in there as well, just because it is such a broad topic. But the... Yeah, the social media pages, that's where I would say direct everybody because that's where the real uh, entertainment, education, and inspiration really takes place. That's great. Thank you so much. Again, um, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. I think that's probably the most I've learned and something I'm not familiar with at all. Um, And so, you know, I I hope to see some people go and, and actually follow you and take a look and learn more and dive in. And, you know, I think we could have, there's still plenty more to cover, um, but we'll we'll end it there for the sake of a, you know people's attention in today's day and age, and um, you know we'll we'll cut the live video for now. But Ryan, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. So the tip of the week this week. After talking with Ryan, I guess um, it's it's a good time to just kind of reflect. So clearly, Ryan has proved that he can literally build, um, you know, an arrow, a bow, a broadhead, um, even the moccasins. We didn't even cover half of it. Like I had said, everything he can he can make it all, and have massive success with it. So I guess my tip of the week when I'm trying to be reflective is just that, you know, don't get too caught up in some of the gear and some of the modern advances and technological advances that, you know, we have, you know, I know we're really eager to open up our wallets to some of the really cool and exciting things that are out there. And look, I'm, I'm the first right to do that as the quote unquote, okay, hunter that I've so, um, probably deemed myself, that's all good. There's nothing wrong with it. And in fact, I'm probably going to continue to do that. But just let's try to all keep it into perspective that cavemen used to be able to kill these freaking animals, right, with stone tools and, and wooden sticks. And so just to hear someone still doing that in today's modern times, 
you might want to just think twice before buying that super expensive camouflage or whatever. Um, granted, there's some products that I truly believe in and stand behind and love. And some of that stuff, you know, I just like the people and the company and the brand so much that I'm all about it. And uh, there's nothing wrong with being more comfortable, warm, uh, scent free and, and advanced in, in the woods. And, and some of us can use all the help we can get. Believe me, I'm one of those someones. So that's all that the, the tip of the week is this week is just um, try to keep things into perspective for yourself and maybe do a little bit of self-reflecting. And do you really need to go blow all that money on XYZ? Um, that's all. And, and what a cool thing, man. What a, what a great guest. What a fascinating topic. There's um, something primitive and primal in all of us to some degree. And it was really cool to kind of hear all of that stuff. So hopefully this one kept your attention and you got some value out of it. And, uh, you know, good luck out there, hunt public. And don't forget that the W2H Rut Club Radio is starting on September 6th. So very excited about that. Help us spread the word. As always, your reviews and ratings and all that good stuff is great to have. I love the feedback. It keeps me going and I'll continue to provide value and entertainment and practical tips and advice in every episode that I do. We got a good lineup of guests coming in. Uh, all the way into, I think, like September. So stay tuned and uh, hum public. 